0: I have come here to chew
1: bubblegum and kick
0: ass,
1: and I'm all out of
0: bubblegum.
1: Call me Snake. The blackest eyes, the
0: devil's eyes, Billion and simply evil. Out of your mind, Wayne. God bless you. <laughs> what do we do? Hello out there and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movies, music, and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. Hey, Chris, what's on tap this week?
1: We are continuing our discussion on... John Carpenter's The Thing uh which is such an epic movie that we had to do two episodes on it.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one that deserves that treatment. It is my favorite Carpenter movie. <laughs> I think you said it was like your number 2. It's I, I I'm not good at putting rankers together, but it's definitely <laughs> one of my favorites. Definitely one of my favorites, yeah. I'm so good at it. I obsess over that stuff. It's uh it's one of those things. I hope by the time we're done with the show I will have every single Carpenter movie ranked down to Oh. Like one by one. I'm expecting that. I'm expecting that. I'm looking forward to it. I don't think this one is going to be uh, uprooted from the top spot, though. I love this movie so much. I have watched it now more times in quick succession than ever before. I saw it again these last two weeks to do this episode. I watch it before that. I'm hosting a screening of it tomorrow night, and, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm enjoying it more and more. This is always the time of year that I watch it, and I think it just keeps getting better. This is one that just keeps growing in stature for me, and uh, you know, we'll get into a little bit. So, last week we discussed basically the pre-production of this film we also talked through the movie kind of sequentially we did basically the first half, maybe the first half plus a little bit, and tonight we are going to finish that discussion, we'll finish the rest of the movie, and talk about basically what happened afterward, and how this is one of those films that unfortunately at the time was maybe a little ahead of its time or something like that, and didn't really catch on the way it should have, and it's only years and years down the road where we are now that it's it's finally gotten the appreciation and the cult status that it deserves.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to talk about that because um, based upon some things I was just reading, there's a whole cornucopia of theories as to why this movie didn't perform the way they expected. And um, that's been the the centerpiece of a lot of conversations over the years. Um, So we will get to that after we try to complete the plot, I guess.
0: Yeah, um, we'll we'll figure that all out. I did want to mention, because we have to talk about it, because it's been in the news a lot lately, and, and I've been just sort of seeing updates on this almost every day over the past few weeks. It's It's weird that it's all coming down right when we are talking about this movie, but the Thing remake planned for... I guess this year, next year, is slowly starting to come together. And the latest bit of casting news I read is that Wyatt Russell, Kurt Russell's son, is in talks or at least is uh, is being discussed as, uh, as a potential participant in that movie in an acting capacity. Really? What do, you, what do you think of that?
1: I'm not familiar with any of Wyatt Russell's work that I know of. Um, <laughs> so I can't really comment on it, but that's definitely interesting that they want to keep it within the the family tree. I think that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do a reboot, if you're going to do something like that, I mean, maybe Cody Carpenter does the music for it or something like that too, just to sort of keep with the the next generation kind of thing. Um, I actually have seen Wyatt Russell in a few things, and he's very good and kind of, you know, can get across a little bit of a screen persona like his dad, but as I said the last time, and I I don't know if you're exactly in the same place as I am, but I think this movie is so perfect that I kind of don't want it touched. I, I want to protect it. And um, I don't know. I, I, I have mixed feelings about a Thing reboot, particularly because um, unlike the 2009, I believe it was, that The Thing, which was taken as a prequel to uh, to the original film, this is right. going to kind of be a it, its own story and kind of obliterate everything that's come before. And uh, it's going to potentially maybe even kick off a new franchise. Who knows uh, if it is successful? And I'm a little worried about that.
1: I wonder if Keith David has a son that oh, they can I... work into the uh <laughs>
0: into the casting it would be really you know what uh, that would be my favorite thing remake is if every one of them like descendants of everyone <laughs> the young brimley whoever that is he's he's probably got some kids and uh you know little t k carter and and just bring them all in and we'll uh, we'll do the uh it's uh we'll call it lil thing dude we'll get uh
1: <laughs> we'll get uh Dean Cundy's son on cinematography
0: yeah. Yeah, and then you know their dads can just sort of hang out on set and, uh, and supervise or something like that. I don't know. I, I figured I didn't want to. Little, wanna... thing. <laughs> we'll <call it> little <laughs> thing. Oh man! All and, right. And now we don't have to talk about that anymore. So we will talk about the original thing, John Carpenter's masterpiece. We'll be right back to finish up our discussion on that. One hundred thousand years ago, it found its way into our galaxy. trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica. It could not escape. Now the men
1: of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery.
0: An alien creature had frozen, but not to death. place to hide all right, we are back and launching back into this discussion of the thing um Chris, do you have a place where you want to start in terms of either the plot or anything else about the movie that you think we should throw out right at the beginning of the show here? Well, I'm
1: trying to recall exactly <clears throat> where we left off. I know that we talked about you know Blair being uh quarantined in the tool shed, and um we we talked about. <clears throat> them discovering the burnt corpse of uh Fawkes. Somewhere around there in the movie is where I believe we are because it's about to get to the point where McCready ends up kind of taking the lead and un- in an unwantingly <laughs> in an unwanting way. But he starts to develop like a leadership role as as his character in this movie.
0: Yeah, and actually, um, just sort of looking over my notes here, the one where I left off, uh, one of my favorite dialogue exchanges is a little bit before that, and it's uh, between MacReady and Blair it's when McCready is basically leaving him behind in the tool shed. And (laughs) Blair says, uh, trust is a tough thing to come by these days. And McCready just kind of dismissively says to him, trust in the Lord. And it's this great little sort of sarcastic (laughs) moment, um, you know, invoking God in this movie that is just about this sort of godless, horrific situation. And, uh, and, Mm. you know, he's kind of acknowledging at that point that from here on out, we're not going to be able to trust each other at all anymore. And, uh, and already, you know, we we mentioned on the last episode, there's this moment in the film where um, day turns to night and Carpenter sort of in his commentary says this very, I thought, prescient and perceptive thing where he says night falls and we never really come out of it or something like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, this kind of downward spiral is already happening. And we know at this point. Uh, that, that we're not really going to be getting out of it. And I, I think that's it's sort of an interesting way to view this movie, especially if you've seen it a number of times, as, as you and I have. And most of the rabid fan base of this film has is what is the point where you realize that there is going to be absolutely no chance at a happy ending here? I mean, I think it's fairly early on. And, and you know, even in this point, even in this just small little exchange of dialogue, um, you know, trust in the Lord, that sort of cynical <laughs> line there that really does tell you that uh, that. There really is no hope. There will be no deus ex machina. God is not going to be showing up to get these guys out of this situation.
1: Yep. And I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the the movie, and I think it's a lot of people's favorite scene, is when they decide to test everyone's blood, which I thought is a really kind of uh, interesting idea to discover who is infected and who's not. Um, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but that scene is incredibly suspenseful. You, you and, are uh,
0: a little bit, but uh, I will okay. say, just leading that discussion off, um, yeah. Carpenter has basically said that is the scene that made him want to do the movie. And I think it's it's definitely one of my favorite scenes, if not my favorite scene. It's It's incredibly suspenseful. I want to really, really break that one down because, really, I mean, that sequence... It Before and after that sequence is really important stuff also. I mean, there's this one little passage of this movie here where everything is absolutely critical. And uh, and it's kind of like three or four of its best moments like right in a row. Um, but the lead into that is when they go back to the outpost and they open up the refrigerator with the blood samples in it. Oh, yes. And they see that the blood has been tampered with. And uh, Carpenter in his commentary track, he says that's where the paranoia really starts to set in in this movie. Because now they sort of know that someone who is still among them is working against them. And, uh, you know, like I was saying just a second ago, maybe that's the moment where you realize, uh, you know, between that and, uh, and the trust in the Lord exchange, maybe that's the point where we know that things have, uh, have gone completely off the rails. Um, just sort of an interesting point from Carpenter's commentary uh, on this section of the movie is he really had a tough time staging this scene he says and I think it's kind of an important point for the entire film altogether. so Carpenter up until this point you know he's done Halloween he's done Assault in Precinct 13 like he can handle action sequences he's really good at staging conflict he's really good at staging like chase sequences like the kind of stuff you see in Escape from New York and like the sea Sequences in Assault in Precinct 13. And one of the biggest challenges that Carpenter says he faced on the thing was that there's a lot of scenes in this movie where you have a ton of characters in a very small space, and basically what they're doing is talking. Like these scenes that are dramatic in the sense that they're moving the story along and they're revealing a lot about the threat that these characters uh, are facing. And you've got a lot of amazing actors doing outstanding work in this movie, but he keeps talking to throughout his commentary track about just how hard it is to stage that and how to sort of get this uh, on camera in a visually appealing way where we have a good sense of kind of where everyone is and what the arrangement of the scene is. And because the sets are so confined and because the cast is so big, right? Like in the the grand scheme of things, it's a small cast, but they're like in a lot of scenes together and and you have to have a lot of people on screen at the same time. And he talks about particularly this scene. I mean, it's a bunch of guys standing. around a cabinet and you have to make that (laughs) dramatically interesting and and that's got to be a very very hard thing to do and just listening to the commentary this time around I was really impressed by that like I sort of liked how humble he was about just how hard that is to stage these scenes and make them look good and uh, and make them visually coherent and visually interesting and considering I mean some of the directorial stuff he's done up to this point I mean you'd think he could handle anything right I mean he's done genre movies that are full of complicated action set pieces and sequences and and you know this is just a scene of some guys standing around and for him to single something like that out as one of the hardest things he's ever done i think it's fascinating
1: i seem to have a recollection of that because i did uh <clears throat> i didn't take um any notes on the commentary but i did listen to it and i remember him saying that there were certain scenes where you know they'd go to shoot and he he really didn't even know how to direct them you know he was just like all right, and the, just totally winging it um but I think it's a great point that you bring up because yeah as this guy who's like pulled off so many different varieties of scenes and and genres to be to have the this stumbling block be you know just how do I how do I film this conversation
0: yeah um yeah, I mean, he's done crowd sequences. I mean, think of the some of the moments in a, uh, Escape from New York where yeah. there's just like many, many extras, you know, the, the fight sequence in the train station and the boxing ring and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, I guess you, you have assistant directors to kind of manage the extras and help make that stuff look good. And, and you know, he, much like the characters in The Thing, is uh, is in this confined space and has to just sort of make do with what he's got there. So I, I just thought that was interesting. This is a great Scene anyway, because um, it it leads to this this battle for leadership, and uh, and you sort of. One of the things I love about these few moments here is, you know, the, the characterization of this movie, you, you have to work for it a little bit. Um, you know, we don't get these detailed character backstories and the actors and, and you know, when a, with a very small amount of dialogue have to get across kind of who they are. And I feel like we get to know them exceptionally well in this moment where they're trying to decide who gets Gary's gun. Um, Gary, played by Donald Moffat, you know, he's like the commander of the outpost. And Mm -hmm. basically because he had access to the cabinet and because he has the most suspicion on him, he cedes his authority. He basically says someone else can take this gun and and I sort of wash my hands of it. I understand why you suspect me and I'm trying to convince you that that it's not me. I have not been taken over by the creature, but... um, You know, he has this kind of great little monologue, uh, this moment where he gives up that that position and it has to go to someone else. And like uh, Childs yeah this yeah, character up. he steps up kind of right away and and it's macready that says now we, we need somebody with a, a cooler temper um you know child is a little bit too angry and impulsive to basically take over at this point point. and you know just talking about these framings and the composition and and how hard it is to direct actors here i mean whether it's on purpose or not this is framed perfectly where macready is right in the center of the frame for this scene so the guy who ends up taking that leadership position well there he is We're looking kind of right at him and everyone is standing off to the side of him and it puts him right at the center of the action precisely and nobody
1: really uh objects to McCready being like taking command there uh
0: after gary relinquishes his uh uh control no and and why do you think that is i mean is he just the best choice do they all just kind of realize that in that moment
1: i don't know maybe there's something about him that we don't know that they know i think in, in in the movie, he kind of demonstrates that he definitely is, uh, I don't know, brave. Um, level-headed. Yeah, level-headed, sure. And, um, yeah, this is when everything just goes to hell, though. And basically, um, there's one point where everyone mis- uh, suspects that it might be McCready himself who is infected because they find... Uh, Some of his clothes outside by his like little shed or his shack out there.
0: That's a little bit later on, but yeah, they make a classic movie mistake here and seeing it this time, it it reminded me a little bit of like the murder mystery setup, where it's like, let's all Uh (laughs) split up. Like they all have things to do and rather than stay together. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know, uh, you know, I haven't really been in a traumatic situation like this, I guess nobody has, Uh, we've never encountered any shape-shifting aliens uh, in human history but if you're in this situation where um, you sort of need to know who is where, like why wouldn't you always be sort of staying together and uh, why would you let anyone out of your sight, you know, they basically pair off at this point, it's almost like a Scooby-Doo thing, right, and uh, you know it's, uh, like like you were saying, it all goes to hell there, I actually think this is a moment where it looks like things could all work out because now we've got leadership in the hands of McCready and we know that he's probably the right guy for the job. He hasn't done anything impulsive or crazy yet. He seems to be fairly even tempered. And his his ideas up to this point have been pretty good and they have been beneficial to the, the group. And then they sort of go off and split up. And I think that's a, a real problem there. Um, you know, this, this idea that they're all going to sort of go their separate ways and then who knows when they come back, right? Especially if not both of them come back, if it's only one, which is exactly what happens, um, then you have a pretty good suspicion that either he or the other guy he was away with is, is the creature.
1: Yeah. And I love that scene where McCready's like, I got to go check out, you know, my bunker or whatever. And they're like, why? And he's like, because I didn't leave the light on. And then the camera just shows the light on in there. Like, that's pretty neat.
0: Oh, that's a great moment. Yes. <laughs> Somewhere around here, and, and forgive me for not knowing exactly where it fits into the whole mosaic of things, but there's a great moment where McCready records his transmission to uh, yes to the folks at home essentially yep. and uh, it's a very, very famous scene in the movie it 's kind of a piece of dialogue that uh, people have remembered over the years, and he says we're all very tired um, it's this very kind of desperate, defeated monologue where I think he's realized at this point that it's a really hopeless situation <laughs> and and they've all been up for, you know, way longer than a person should be. And they've seen their friends die right in front of them and, and these horrific transformations. And, you know, just the the way he expresses that, we're all very tired. Really, you know, it, it kind of gets across just the bleakness and the, the exhaustion of this movie. And, um, you know, it's, it's a movie that you don't really get any let up from that. You know, there's there's no levity. There's very few moments of this where you can just sort of relax. Um, you're always kind of on edge and, you know. Maybe that's a problem of the movie. Maybe that's a a reason why people have not liked it. I personally think the tone of it is perfect, and, uh, and I love sort of being put through the ringer with this movie, but... He really does kind of sum up the way it is and uh, and what the atmosphere is like there. And what I think is fascinating about this scene is this was added in later. Uh, this was not in the original script, and there was a lot of development of this film being done on set. And this was one of those things that came along a little bit uh, farther down the road. And once again, as we've talked about with previous Carpenter films, it's some of those scenes that are the most iconic scenes, um, like the opening to The Fog, where you get that amazing ghost story sequence that that kind of gives you the tone of the whole movie, and and really puts you in in the the mindset to appreciate that supernatural ghost story. This kind of does the same thing for the, the thing, and I couldn't imagine the movie without it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's so excellent,
1: man. And I love how some of the uh, some of the most beautiful shots in the movie are coming up here. But before we get there, um, I want to mention that they they. At this point, this is where they, fi- they find Fawkes. His uh, body is burnt to a crisp. And I think they, they assume that he killed himself um, to basically prevent from <laughs> morphing into an alien um, or whatever. And then we get... This is right around the time where <clears throat> they start to suspect that McCready might be infected. And he's like, I love the scene with him with the dynamite and uh you know the the uh how he's just like i'm going to blow this whole place you know I, I that that whole scene and the way it's lit and everything is just so awesome
0: you're talking about when he comes in through the storeroom Yes. Yes, yep. I I love that scene. Also, um, I love. There's this great production design thing that they do here, where his beard is all sort of encrusted with ice. Yes, and he just looks frozen. Yes. Um, reminds me a little bit of Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining. That that famous closing <laughs> shot of uh, of Jack Torrance at the end of The Shining, and he's just covered in snow. And yeah, I mean, another amazing moment of uh, of Dean Cundy just painting with light, and tells you everything you need to know about this character. This sort of Garish light from the flare on his face. And, you know, as much as he has been kind of even keel up to this point, you realize that, you know, this guy's just desperate to survive and he will do anything and I don't know i i I'm trying to think back like to the first time I saw this movie, and whether I ever thought that McCready could have been the creature and and I don't know I mean this is a moment where you do have to uh you know they they find his jacket they find something literally with his name on it, and you know we've we've already had set up that when the creature takes you over you you sort of lose your clothes it rips through your clothes like uh Nulls finds somebody's underwear in the kitchen earlier in the film, and it is uh it's an indication that the creature has taken over his body. But yeah, I mean, things get really sort of desperate here. And he just plays this scene so, so well. I mean, it's uh, it's a side of Kurt Russell that we haven't really seen uh, in this film before.
1: Yeah, or probably any film in his career up to that point. But it's just great. And I mean, it it, it looks awesome. Like I feel like we haven't talked much about um, Keith David's character, Childs at this, uh,
0: up to this point, what's your, what's your read on him in this movie? Um, child is a really interesting character. Actually. I love Keith David as, as an actor, by the way. I mean, he's still working all the time today and, uh, and he just, he's a guy with like really great sort of gruff, tough guy screen presence. And I think, you know, we're, we're meant to understand child as just this very no nonsense kind of badass grizzled character and you know Carpenter makes a point about he he sort of saw the thing as like an old World War II men on a mission kind of picture and you know if you think back to war movies there's always somebody like Childs there right like someone who just doesn't take any bullshit from anyone and um you know he's he's uh very short spoken i mean he's not a guy that's going to expound on on philosophy or anything like that he's kind of just there to get the job done and it's interesting. I mean, we're we're really skipping ahead here and we'll come back, but uh but it is McCready and Child are the two survivors at the end of this film and i think anytime you have a a film where people are getting killed off left and right like this one and you have a very limited number of characters left at the end (laughs) it definitely tells you about the values of the film and uh and sort of what is a a good way to be in this world and and you know it turns out like we lose so many other characters i mean the down-to-earth characters like uh like fuchs they die the uh, the sort of really logical scientifically minded characters Blair I guess would be the good example there or copper they die over the course of this film the one who is the leader uh, the one who has sort of the more leadership like you know almost a presidential quality is uh, is Gary he dies um, the the stoner kind of space cadet characters they die and what we're left with is McCready and childs so I think that speaks very much to uh, to how the the writers of this film feel about a character like Childs like that uh, seems to be a kind of guy that they think is a, a good way to be a good sort of personality to have
1: yeah and that's so crazy they find out that that Blair was like building this spacecraft and
0: uh... the stuff with Blair is so good, right? Like once he gets exiled from the camp and he's out in the tool shed, like every time we see him or refer to him, like something really interesting happens. Um, Like when when McCready goes to visit him, basically, and he opens up the little mail slot or whatever it is on the door. And Wilfred Brimley's there in that scene with a noose hanging very prominently right in front of him. Like that's yeah. what he's been doing with his time in there, like just plotting his own suicide and stuff like that that. And, uh, and Brimley in that scene is so good. Like he actually really moves me there where he's saying, you know, I'm not going to hurt anybody anymore and I'm harmless and I just want to get out of here. Like he really tries to, uh, to make this heartfelt appeal to McCready and McCready being the, the even tempered level-headed guy that he is, he's not hearing it. And he understands that unfortunately, you know, Blair may look like your grandpa, but he could be a lot more dangerous than that. So he leaves him there. But, uh, but I don't know, Brimley really gets under my skin there. Like I, I almost kind of feel bad for that character. What do you think of that moment?
1: I totally agree with you. He he's, he's so much compared to how nuts he was before. He's, he's like so cool. And he's just like, I just want to come back in. I'm not going to hurt anybody. Come on. You know? And (laughs) yeah, McCready just like slides the door shut in his face and just walks away. (laughs) He's just like totally
0: not having it, you know? So yeah, that's a great scene. One of the interesting things about this movie is uh you know a character like that right like Wilfred Brimley at least at this point in his life, I don't know what he was like when he was younger, but you know, like I was saying, he looks like your grandpa. He looks like a, a very sort of innocent, meek kind of character. And because the thing is what it is, right? Like it's this creature that takes over your body and then can transform into whatever it wants to. Um, you know, it assimilates you and then can become something else. Um, you really can't go by looks. Um, you know, a, a character like Child, who is sort of big and beefy and physically powerful. Well, yeah. you know, normally, if you're in a sort of regular situation you might think all right that's someone i don't want to mess with but like wilford brimley as blair uh that's a guy that that you think you could probably subdue pretty easily if you had to but the thing being what it is you can't even sort of go back on that like these old man kind of characters. I mean, there's a few of them in this film there's kind of two generations in this movie and that older generation you can't trust them either or the sort of you know more slight nerdy kind of guys
1: like fukes Fuchs. Yeah, I stand corrected. I think I called him Fawkes before. Fuchs. You're, you're I, probably thinking I,
0: of, of Hauk from uh, from Escape from New that's York. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. Hauk, Fuchs. Have we been watching too many Carpenter movies? It's possible. I. It,
1: it could be. <laughs> Are they starting I mean, to run
0: together at this point?
1: Well, he plays so many damn name games, too, that it's
0: like... You know, yeah. And it's, it's always a like confusing. a little bit weirder. Uh, you know, it's not Hawk. It's Hauk, But whatever. Um, yeah. I just want to mention that scene with Blair because I, I think it's really good. And uh, yeah. and, you know, what you were saying about McCready's return to the camp where he all of a sudden becomes the antagonist. Um, it's a, a neat little narrative shift that this film does there. And that takes us to the defibrillator scene, which is certainly one of the most notable moments in the movie. I love it because it's actually a
1: good idea, you know, and I mean, it it seems like it seems like a logical idea and I just love, (laughs) I love how there's so much tension because you're watching it and everyone's really quiet. No one's saying a fucking thing. It's like, all right, you know, we're going to tie you guys up uh, that way in case you transform into something, you can't hurt us and you just don't know what's going to happen um, I love when McCready makes a makes a snide comment towards Gary and he's like he's like, We'll get to you in a minute, you know? Because childs and all them, they're like they're kinda like, this whole thing is just this is a bunch of BS, right? But yeah, essentially what they do is they take blood samples from everyone and then they put like like a like a wire in it or something, and then if it's like if the blood moves or reacts to it in a certain way, then they know that it's not human blood and that it's been uh, contaminated.
0: It's actually MacReady who kind of figures out the way this creature works, that he essentially deduces that every cell kind of operates independently. So... Um, you know, if you try to, even if you take a piece of it, like some blood, some cells that are forming its blood, and you try to hurt those, uh, it's going to react. The blood itself is going to try to get away from that stimulus and try to survive. Um, I do, like, before we get too far into the blood test, though, we got to talk about the defibrillator scene. That comes first. I always get these two mixed up also. Oh, um, right. But the moment where the, the creature basically arms off and uh, and then turns into this spider creature it's Norris uh, the Norris character is on the operating table and copper is just defibrillating him and you know it's that sort of rule of three thing it might even be four times I'm not actually sure I'd have to go back and watch it again but it's that sort of old gag where you get used to something and it happens once and nothing happens happens the second time and nothing happens and then the third time just I- I've never seen all hell break loose quite in this Way so at, <laughs> in, in any kind of movie before, um, you know, where literally uh, Norris's midsection opens up, becomes a giant mouth, and bites Copper's arms off. Uh, it is one of the great gore moments, I think, of all time.
1: Yeah, is his, his body becomes like a bear trap. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it it
0: just perfectly describe
1: it. Bite bites his arms. Or is is it one arm or both arms? No,
0: it's both. He's got two stumps. Yeah. The prosthetics look great. I mean, it's it's great <laughs> practical effects in this moment. It's so gross. This dude's arms just get straight up cleanly bitten off. I mean, it's crazy. And, uh, and I mean, you get this incredible transformation of Norris on the table and Norris becomes this Norris thing creature. And like his head starts separating from his body. And there's all this like green sinewy muscle stuff that's like just breaking apart. I, I mean, it's it's truly horrific. I mean, it's it's <laughs> one of the great moments of body horror, I, I think, ever.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine it being
0: much more sensational than that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, but I mean, just it, because like it's such a quiet moment leading up to that. I mean, we've got we already have a crisis, right? Like Norris is basically dying. There's a scene earlier on where I think it's when they're they're fortifying the outpost, like they're nailing boards over the windows and stuff like that. We see him kind of clutching his chest a little bit. So we know he's a guy with a heart problem. Um, you know, he's he's got kind of a condition. Why you'd send someone with a heart condition to an Antarctic research base, I don't know. Um, that's uh, right. quite. Question for the writers to answer, I guess. But um, it was the '80s. You know, yeah, they, I guess. Whatever. I don't care how old he is or what his pre-existing conditions are. Just <laughs> send him out there. We're sure he won't freeze to death or have a heart attack. But. Um, just sort of—you already have this character who's in distress, and someone who's trying to save him. And it's kind of a quiet moment. It's kind of a conventional dramatic moment, you know. This character is dying. Let's get the paddles out and see if we can start his heart back up. And then it just goes almost comically awry, and we get uh, some of the the greatest transformation, greatest pra- practical effects in the movie. And then, of course, you get the spider head moment, which uh, which is is another iconic, uh, like the kind of thing that you only see in this movie
1: yeah and i mean well after after norris uh you know (laughs) after norris transforms into a large mouth uh mccready blasts him with the flamethrower and then his head falls off and uh grows these (laughs) giant legs and turns into this like arachnid head or something and man that is scary as hell like and it kind of crawls past them without any of them noticing.
0: Oh, it's a great moment where, where it's in the background and they're in the foreground. And something about, I mean, I don't know about you. I am one of those people that just cannot stand spiders. I'm okay with snakes. Oh. There's a, a lot of things that I'm fine with, but I have a little bit of arachnophobia. And something about the way this creature looks, those spindly legs. Oh, my God. And uh, the effects here are so, so good. The puppetry is so good here. It kind of goes under a table at one point, And you can yep. see the legs just kind of twitching a little bit. It's not really... Really moving it's just kind of standing there and you know it's gonna pounce or move or something and it's just so unsettling and it's got this guy's head and it's just i, I don't even know how to describe it i mean dude this is you like have a, uh, dante's inferno of movies <laughs> you, you 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 say that you know you have uh, a little bit
1: of arachnophobia i am scared out of my mind of spiders i always have been um there's a there's a movie that I would recommend, actually, with William Shatner. Have you ever seen Kingdom of the Spiders? I have not have heard about it. Oh, my God. That is the war. It makes arachnophobia look like, you know, E.T., or something. I don't know. Arachnophobia um,
0: is one of those movies I need to see again. It's been a long time. I was a little kid when it came out and I saw it. It was probably way too young for it and uh, and I remember being straight up horrified by it and I wonder, I mean, you know, it's an older movie but because it is uh, like specifically about spiders, uh, I probably would still have the exact same feelings about it but yeah, I mean, this is, uh, it's one of the sort of quintessential iconic scenes in the movie. I'm sure that this is the scene like when people went to see this in nineteen 1982 and didn't know what they were in for. And Carpenter talks about that a lot, about how audiences were just not prepared for where this movie was going to go and how brutal it was going to get. You know, if you were just kind of sticking it out, like, all right, I've probably seen the worst that I'm going to see here. (laughs) And then this happens. Then this happens. This is where you just go running for the exits of the theater. like you know, the, the comparison is always Alien, right? But the most gruesome moment in the movie Alien is the chestburster scene. And that happens, you know, about 40 minutes into the movie or so. And it never gets worse than that. I mean, there's some real intense suspense sequences after that. And there's the, the part with Ash, the android, where he gets dismembered and, uh, you know, his head is like spewing white liquid everywhere. But nothing's quite as intense uh, gore-wise as that chestburster scene. And here it's like, we've seen so much already. How much farther can they go and then carpenters basically like here's how far we can go yep
1: and you got to mention it that the, that's awesome how the line of dialogue when they look at the spider <laughs> right before they torch it is just doing it you've got to be fucking you've got to be fucking and,
0: kidding me i mean and, uh,
1: the uh i loved how i was um one of the few people in a group i was with when we saw uh it chapter two in the theaters And they uh, totally winked at this movie with the spider head. And I think they even say the same line. And I remember just going, oh, my God, that's (laughs) totally a reference to the thing. And I love how they did that. And I love how I knew what they were referencing um, in that scene.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is. If you're gonna pay tribute to uh, a horror scene from the past few decades, you got it's got to be this one. And that line, I mean, it's just it's so perfect. Like the delivery of it is so deadpan, and it's just it's it's such an audience surrogate thing too. Like you got to be fucking kidding <laughs> me. That that's how far they're gonna go with this, really. And yeah. uh, you know, I mean, this is not a funny movie, but uh, but that's my actually second favorite line of dialogue in the film. My my favorite one is coming up a little bit after that but there are these moments of sort of just deadpan humor that at least for me it kind of uh it eases the tension just a little bit There, just enough right because you have to still be in the moment but also it's so intense and it's so crazy and so gruesome that you need a little bit of something to uh to sort of ease that and i think this does a great job of that
1: yeah so they torch the spider head and uh um then we go
0: And now, sorry, uh, I don't I don't mean to interrupt, but like MacReady is the one who figures out that like this creature, you know, it's it's parts are individual. So you can hurt one part of it like every part of it will try to defend itself. I guess this this is where he gets that from, like, you know, because he does burn Norris's body. But Norris's head has become this other thing. And that's got its own sort of uh, way of being and its own existence now.
1: Yes, yeah, he he figures it out, so he's, uh, maybe that's why he was given that the leadership position, maybe everyone just knew that he was a really good problem solver, or very intelligent, and knew how to fly helicopters really well or something,
0: I don't know. Like, who is thinking at all in this moment, and he sort of puts two and two together, like, alright, if his body and his head could be separate, you know, like cutting an earthworm in half or something, uh, then we have a real serious problem here. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, this is also the scene where McCready kills Clark. Uh and, and it's a moment that always I've seen this movie so many times and it always really jumps out at me. Um Clark basically comes after McCready, McCready shoots him, and we find out later that uh Clark was not possessed by the creature. Yes. So so McCready has essentially killed an innocent man and like that's the hero of our movie here. Uh, you know, he just blew away this guy who was a friend of his just hours ago.
1: Well, that's what happens when people are scared, and that was arguably a a moment of self-defense. Sure. Uh, Uh, Oh, yeah.
0: I'm I'm not saying he just, like, murders him in cold blood. Clark does attack McCready, but, you know, generally, the morality of a Hollywood movie is uh, is not going to be something like that. And especially, um, you know, I'm always surprised every time when they do the blood test on Clark, and no, he's actually not the creature.
1: Yeah, it's such a big bummer. It's it's such a huge bummer because you're expecting him. You're you're kinda of hoping that he turns into a creature and he doesn't instead.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure McCready was hoping too. Yeah, no,
1: exactly. Um instead, I believe it's Palmer who basically transforms and then we get uh <laughs> we get some more uh blowtorching action here or uh flamethrowing action here. I love it. I love how that's the way to just get rid of these things most efficiently is just to grab a flamethrower and go to town. There's so much flamethrowing in this movie.
0: There is. I mean, it's a... Flares and flamethrowers and fire. Um, we talked about that on the last episode. How this movie has dynamite. This, this dynamite, sure, this this elemental symbolism where fire is good and ice is bad. Um, you know, mm. the way they kind of defeat, they, they don't really defeat the creature in the end, but um, the way they sort of neutralize it, at least temporarily, is they light the fucking entire outpost on fire. You know, they blow up the entire thing. And, you know, uh, McCready and Child have that dialogue toward the end like oh it's it's warm in here now, it's not going to be for long or something like that, so the ice is eventually going to overtake the fire, and the creature is going to come back and you know we think one of them is probably possessed by it but uh but yeah, throughout the movie it's uh fire is associated with with the good guys and with winning the situation, and ice is all like ice is where the creature came from, it literally was cut out of a large block of ice um the blood testing guy. Like I don't want to go too far past it before we just. Uh, I mean, we've we've talked about it a little bit already, but just the the quiet of this scene mm. and, and and the way. Yeah, and uh, and Macready sort of like I, I love the progression the sort of arc of this scene it's almost like a little movie in itself where he finally gets his way like alright this is my idea I'm going to do this blood test and they're real skeptical of him at first and he goes through the first few samples and absolutely nothing happens, nothing happens yeah. and uh, and Gary just sort of yells at him like this is pure nonsense and uh, and you know you sort of agree at that point it's like alright yeah maybe it was a good thought and, uh, and maybe you thought you had something figured out there but uh, you know you could be wrong and you're putting these people in danger and they're tied down, which, uh, you know leads to as i was saying my favorite line of the dialogue uh, my favorite oh, line of dialogue in the movie. it's gary right <laughs> yeah about uh, you know being in this fucking couch i want to spend the rest of my life I, I forget exactly how he says it it's a famous line from the movie i should know it word for word but um I you i can't think of it either but i know what you're talking about basically gary starts out very reasonable sounding He's like get me off this fucking couch and uh, and we haven't really seen that side of him uh, at, at least since the beginning of the film where he shoots the norwegian but, you know, again, it's this little comedic moment in a very harsh and, and brutal and suspenseful scene. And, you know, I just sort of love the way that they're just about going along with MacReady at the beginning of this. And toward the end of it, they are ready to just revolt. There's ready to, you know, they're going to break out of uh, the the things holding him down and probably tackle this guy and kill him.
1: Yeah. And I want to go back to what you said about the silence. Um, I love silence in movies. I'm not trying to make any kind of comparison, but I watched that new Annabelle movie recently and it was like there's a scene where this girl goes into the the um uh, the Warren's room full of haunted artifacts and she just walks through it for like ten minutes and it's just, like, just no sound. It's just her like checking stuff out and like it really makes you feel like you're there with them. Like just like in this movie, it's so effectively shot because you're watching them do this. You're, you know that, like, I mean, they know. Well, they don't know, um, exactly how the blood is going to respond to the test until it happens. Which, I mean, talk about a jump scare. Like, how how scary would that be? I mean, forget a spider. Imagine you dipped a wire in some blood, and all of a sudden, this like creature just jumped out of it or something onto you or I mean yeah I
0: mean just... it, they, they, you're right they don't know how it's gonna react they know it's it's gonna be like some kind of self-preservation thing but you know is it gonna just jump out of the petri dish like form something and pull you in there and cut your hand off or something yeah. um, you know or is it just gonna try to go away from the stimulus away from the the hot wire or whatever it is but yeah I mean you, you make a really good point I mean a lot of horror is silence right I mean when we think of horror we do think of jump scares we think of some some loud noise coming from somewhere you know something jumping out of a closet that's usually a cat whatever um but you know silence is so so very important in, in setting up suspense also in, and in staging horror scenes because it is it's uh it's incredibly unsettling um you know we see that earlier way way earlier in the film we already talked about this sequence but when uh, when they go investigate the Norwegian camp, that's a mostly silent scene. And, uh, and you know, there are parts where even the music kind of cuts out a little bit in this film, so we can just kind of experience this right along with the characters and be in this world. And, and you're almost sort of longing for something to, uh, or someone to say something or some sort of sound. Um, you have to imagine this Antarctic base is probably quiet, very unsettlingly quiet, and all you can hear is like the wind from outside most of the time. So, yeah, it's uh, it's used exceptionally well um along with the silence though when we actually do get some sound effects in this like when someone things out when someone tur- turns into the creature the sound <laughs> effects are a completely horrifying thing also you know it's these like baby animal sort of you know yeah. wailing and screeching noises uh <laughs> and then you got like flamethrowers and things blowing up and stuff like that so it's really feast or famine here it's uh it's kind of one or the other Well, you get a little Stevie Wonder earlier in the film. That's nice. That's a nice respite from all of that.
1: Yes, we do get some Stevie Wonder and we get some, uh, roller skating as well. Yeah. Um,
0: but. We're so far past that, that now. It's, it's no longer time for Stevie Wonder at this point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's not just somebody with like, you know, a gunshot wound anymore. Um, it's just turned into an absolute viral massacre of some kind and, uh.
0: There's a, a great bit here in the scene. So once things, you know, again, this the blood test scene escalates and there's uh, there's a transformation happening and MacReady goes for the flamethrower and the flamethrower doesn't work. He can't get it to light up. And mm-hmm. you have this, like, real moment, um, reminds me a little bit of Jaws, uh, you know, when they're, they're trying to kill the shark in Jaws, and their equipment kind of fails on them right at the most in- opportune moment. MacReady um, has a moment like that, too. And it's genius, the way it's set up. I mean, the, the way that's cut together, and, you know, the tension in just, like, you know how to defeat this thing, but, but the flamethrower is not working. And, uh, and actually, Carpenter said that was a thing they came up with on set also, because, they needed to sort of justify why they don't, you know, why he didn't just kill him right away, why he doesn't just sort of burn him the second he sees the transformation happening. And it's because, you know, they they wanted to show that transformation there. And and so, you know, the uh, the flamethrower not working gives them a, a few more seconds to just increase the horror and increase the tension there and show this transformation and all its sort of bloody goodness before they're able to do something about it.
1: Right, right. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Yeah, that whole scene is probably maybe my favorite scene in the whole movie
0: yeah I mean like I was saying like leading up to the blood test and everything after the blood test you know the few minutes after that I mean you just don't get to breathe here at all it's just so intense and it's all kind of stuff we haven't seen before and, and even in this film we haven't really seen before and you know it's uh, it's the ultimate you know you've got people in a confined space and tied down and uh, and you know their equipment is failing like this whole room is basically on fire by the time they're done again that, that fire symbolism there. And that's really all they can do to hold it off. Like things do get really desperate. And that brings us into the third act that, that really sort of takes us up to the, the resolution of the movie for what it is.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of how to wrap this up plot wise. Um, I mean, they, but- Well, I mentioned it before. This is where they find out that, you know, Blair has been assembling this spacecraft or whatever. I don't really know how he was able to pull that off during all this, but um, basically...
0: Uh, (laughs) Well, let's let's talk about that, actually. I mean, I think this is a perfect movie or as as close to such a thing as could be. Um, That's a moment that sort of doesn't quite work for me, I guess. Um, You know, I guess the implication is he takes some of the parts from the helicopter and he's able to scrounge some things from the tool shed and he tunnels under the tool shed. But, um, you know, like the idea that he's able to sort of build a craft that could potentially get him out of there uh you know i don't i mean we also don't know exactly what the purpose of that is right like is he just trying to get out of antarctica or is or is this alien creature going to take this thing and fly home with it um you know or is he just trying to get back to the uh, you know is it like an ET kind of situation again those ET parallels ET killed this movie ET is the uh you know cited as one of the reasons why it was uh, a failure and yet it's the same thing about uh, maybe he's just trying to go home you know but yeah, I, I find that a little I mean if if you're gonna say something in this movie is far fetched, and of course a lot of things are, um, that that's where it's sort of my suspension of disbelief. Uh I, I start to lose it a little bit. Yeah. Cause how did he put this thing together by himself and
1: in such a short period of time? But whatever. I'll suspend my belief for that. Um turns out Blair is just this big badass uh it turns into a big badass creature though anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean you you get these sort of you get a few more quiet moments before that, right? Like when they're investigating these underground tunnels and yes. the few survivors that are left at this point, so it's uh it's Knowles and it's McCready and Gary makes it out of that surprisingly. I I always feel like he's you know, meant to die sooner and, uh, and he makes it pretty far into this film and they sort of make this like suicide pact almost where it's like we know we're not going to be able to get out of here so now the important thing you know and I, I think they know it well before that moment but they actually kind of express it here they finally just come out and say look this is a suicide mission we're all gonna die again it's a, that World War II men on a mission kind of picture here right like um, to defeat this enemy we're going to have to sacrifice ourselves and now it's about saving the world it's, it's no longer about saving ourselves now it's about just finding some way to prevent this from ever getting out of here so we get uh the exploration of the tunnels we get them mm-hmm. basically blowing up the whole camp like i was saying before mccready crashes a, a, a bulldozer through one of the buildings and um you know it's sort of mass chaos There's a great moment where the camera's pulling back through a hallway and they're just blowing up, you know, piece by piece, just throwing dynamite into every room. And it's like explosion, explosion, explosion and um, all really, really intense stuff. And even though we sort of know all these characters are going to die at this point, there is still suspense there because we don't know if if. At least they're going to be able to kill the creature first. And, uh, yeah, we get uh, one of the the most amazing special effects in the movie where the giant Blair creature. Well, first we see Blair as himself, Um, Wilfred Brimley and Donald Moffat, these two like white haired old men uh, just sort of having this like little battle. And uh, Blair like basically sticks his hand into Gary's face and kind of sticks his fingers under the skin. It's a great looking special effect. It's really, really gruesome and you know if you weren't scared of Wilfred Brimley up to that point he is terrifying in that scene it's a great performance uh that he gives there when you know this is the first time we see Blair uh as you know we've seen him with the axe before just smashing all the equipment but now he's like this super powerful character and kind of just like crushes Gary like a bug almost And then we get, like, his transformation we don't see, but we get this amazing shot where basically he's ripping up the floor. He's underground and he's coming out of, uh, you know, he's emerging into this tunnel from from underneath. And so the floorboards start flying up and we get this great tracking shot (laughs) as they're running away from, we don't even know what it looks like yet, right? But we know it's huge and incredibly powerful. And then we get, like, the final iteration of the creature that is absolutely right. Um yeah, I think all that is
1: so awesome like sometimes how cuz <clears throat> this movie obviously wanted to show its monsters uh but I do like I do like how they kind of take advantage of this scene and you know, it's cool when they don't always reveal everything. So it's just completely left up to your imagination. But yeah, I mean, this is where Brimley or Blair, I mean, he just I mean, he loses it, man. You know, <laughs> well, he's, he's gone.
0: Is, yeah, he's, he's gone for sure. Um, the What do you think of the final version of The Creature? So the climax of this movie is uh, mm-hmm. basically we see this final version of the thing. And watching it this time, I was kind of struck by how short a time it's on screen for right because I do you know I, I have memories of it and the way we see the dog head and we see Norris's head it's like yeah. basically showing us almost every form that it's taken up to this point and you know as I was saying on the last episode it's like this is kind of the ultimate monster movie because it's the ultimate monster it can become whatever it wants it can become human like it can be sort of uh, you know spidery or rodenty or something like that it can be like a Lovecrafty. tentacle beast Um, you know it's it's like a greatest hits of every horrific monster you've ever seen on screen and now it becomes this sort of giant um you know i jokingly said like a kaiju the last time it's not quite godzilla (laughs) but um you know this is the the biggest most powerful form of it you do feel like it could smash a building if it wanted to um but but do you think it's too much do you think they sort of overplay their hand in this final sort of moment of creature action in this movie?
1: Uh, I mean, I think at this point you're you're just so shocked by what you've seen that it's like <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think part of them, part of the uh, attitude towards that was just like, well, we've we already gone this far, um you know, with the practical effects and whatnot. Let's just let's just go completely over the top. Kind of reminds me of like when uh Freddy Krueger used to rip his shirt open and you could see like all the heads of all his victims like. You know, just all like in his body and stuff like that. It's like this giant amalgamation of just like everything um, that it's devoured.
0: Yeah, and... y- you know, I'm sure that is where they got the inspiration for that from, too. I never <laughs> connected the dots there, but absolutely. Um, that That is, I mean, it's not my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street moment. I like when Freddy is a little bit more human-like, like in the, the first film. But yeah, uh, yeah that is uh, that is quite a gag in that film, and certainly that comes from here. You know, the uh, the way the, the dog head emerges from the midsection of this thing. I mean, it's defeated kind of easily, I think, at the end of this film. And because it's just been so difficult uh, up to this point, you know, to, to combat this thing. I guess I, I want a little bit more out of that scene. But I'm sure, you know, just special effects wise, like, you could only make this so threatening, right? Like, you couldn't have it, like, chase Kurt Russell around this tunnel. Like, it, it just wouldn't have looked good. And I think, you know, even... Even some moments that we actually do see here, you can kind of tell that the articulation of this this puppet, whatever it is, this giant sort of anim- animatronic thing, it's not 100% perfect. I mean, it it is limited in, in sort of its range of motion and stuff. Looks great, though.
1: Yep, I agree. And it, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't get much screen time, but... I mean, I think at this point they probably didn't want to traumatize the audience any more than it already had been, you know, so...
0: Yeah, the nightmare fuel has already been... Uh, the tank is full at this point, so you do yeah. have to... Eventually you have to just, like, hit the brakes and uh, and let off a little bit.
1: So a lot of people were really upset about the open-ended nature of the ending of this movie. Yeah. Um, and I, I heard you comment on... You had, I think, uh, via text message uh, before we recorded episode one... You had reported to me that you just watched the thing and you were like, it's the best ending I've ever seen in a, in a Carpenter movie.
0: Yeah, I do think it's his best ending.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a great ending, too. It's just amazing to me from what I read at at the time. Again, at the time, um, a lot of people weren't feeling it. You know, the whole, well, it's up to your imagination sort of thing, whether it's Childs or McCready. And a lot of people were like, oh, I, I hate that. Yeah, well, you know that's a,
0: a story that Carpenter tells about one of the test screenings. You know, this film had some unsuccessful test screenings. And, uh, you know, someone basically asked him at the end, Who, which one is it? And uh, and Carpenter said, well, it's, it's up to you. It's ambiguous. And, and, and he said, I hate that, which, fine. I, I definitely understand that. But, I mean, I think thematically that so well goes along with what this movie has been setting up. and mm-hmm. uh You know, the sort of bleakness, the uncertainty. I mean, there's nothing scarier than uncertainty, right? Like if the end of this movie was one of them turns into the creature and the other one burns him with a flamethrower that is the least satisfying thing or one of the least satisfying things. Carpenter also talks about, I'm not sure if they ever shot this or it might've just been a note from the studio, but someone said, well, well, why don't we hear a helicopter or see a helicopter flying over when they're just kind of sitting there at the end of this film. Lame. And, you know, like this cannot have a happy ending. And because you've set up this apocalyptic, you know, this world ending kind of stakes, there's no way that that would have worked either. I mean, there's, like i think it's it's interesting um first of all that carpenter didn't really know what to do with the end of this film he just knew that he didn't want to go the conventional route and Uh, So really, this kind of all came about on set. And the final, you know, amazing lines of dialogue here were Kurt Russell's idea. So it was kind of a collaboration in that respect. Also, some of the most important stuff in the film came from its lead actor. And it's just such a perfect way. I mean, I love the idea that it's it's Childs and McCready. So, again, that shows you kind of what the values of this film are. Um, You know, who can survive a situation like this? Well, it's this, you know, kind of soft spoken, level headed guy, McCready. Creedy and also the one who's taken this, you know, this sort of gruff exterior this, you know, almost military like badass that is Child's and for some reason, uh, you know it is those two sets of personality traits and characteristics that can get you through this situation but you actually can't get through the situation uh, because, you know, we assume they both die at some point there but the idea of the two of them kind of having a laugh, sharing a drink, they know that all is lost but they (laughs) did the best they could. I mean, what a wonderful moment of just camaraderie and brotherhood and uh you know uh child says so what do we do and McCready says oh well just Sit here a while, see what happens, right? Because what else can you do? I mean, that, that is kind of the only reaction to this situation is, uh, you know, enjoy each other's company a little bit longer. And, you know, you might have to kill each other two minutes down the road. But for now, <laughs> you know, it's nice and warm. The camp is burning. They're, uh, they're not cold probably for the first time in the movie. They did defeat the sort of mega version of the creature. So, you know, it's uh, it's time to take a little victory lap there.
1: I think it's fantastic and uh
0: they're both so good in this scene yeah
1: yeah absolutely and you know we're gonna get some more uh Keith David um in They Live as well
0: yes <laughs> yeah iconic scenes there also mm-hmm.
1: so I mean we went over this movie in, in pretty good detail plot wise I'm sure we missed out on things I'm sure there's characters that we didn't flesh out a lot. I know um, our friend Josh kind of chewed me out, chewed us out for not talking about Cabbie enough in Escape from New York, and I felt bad about
0: that. Oh yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> but, well, I do love Ernest Borgnine, so I apologize about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we didn't, you know, it's it's impossible to cover everything. You realize, you know, how much detail and how much depth there are to these movies when you actually try to just talk about them.
0: Um, this is uh, such a beautifully constructed movie too and yeah. you know to listen to Carpenter tell it a lot of the things that work so well they h- hadn't really had worked out uh, when they went out to shoot this movie and this is a big studio movie you know it's, it's Carpenter's first studio film with studio backing he actually talks about the blood test sequence and how there's all these practical visual effects in that sequence and um, you know it, it was just a, a very complicated shoot and he says you know I, I don't know that I would have been able to do that on one of the independent productions I had done before. And it's not just about budget, but it's more about support and crew and things like that. And that's such a logistical nightmare to set up a scene like that. And he basically said, I couldn't have done that without the studio. Um, but like considering that so much more money was being spent on this and so much more was riding on this than Carpenter's earlier movies, um, the thought that some of the best stuff in it was just sort of spontaneous and just happened on set. And it was like, oh, well, you know, we didn't have a moment where this particular emotional beat happened. So we just kind of wrote it in and shot it on the fly. Like that blows my mind because this movie is so cohesive to me and it's so tonally perfect. I mean, it, it sort of never lets up from what it's trying to do. There's nothing that feels out of place here. There's not a single scene that I would cut from this movie. I mean, I think it's kind of a long movie. It's about an hour and 45 or something like that. And it is just so tightly constructed. And, uh, and there's really no fat, no filler whatsoever. What do you think about the fact that there were
1: discussions with the studio for casting? Uh, Jeff Bridges was an option for McCready. Um, Christopher Walken and Nick Nolte. Uh, Tom Atkins was being considered at one point
0: I'm surprised Atkins is not in this movie
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like
0: there was but- there was a role here for all of the Carpenter regular like Donald Pleasence and Tom Atkins and, uh, you know, maybe not Jamie Lee Curtis, but certainly there was Charles Cyphers should have been in this film. I'm kind of surprised. You know, he kind of went with a lot of people that he wasn't familiar with working with. But, uh, you know, Kurt Russell is so good in this. And, you know, maybe it's just hindsight, maybe just loving this movie over the years and loving that performance. I mean, Jeff Bridges, Christopher Walken, they're some of my favorite actors. But I don't know how they would have worked in this movie because Kurt Russell's just so damn good in it, and he came up with that amazing ending moment. So,
1: well, I yeah, and I mean, at at, at this point, I had read something about how Carpenter ultimately chose to go with um, Kurt Russell just because, I mean, you know, they had already done two movies together and probably had a really good working relationship at this point. And he knew that the, 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 the uh, environment they were going to be filming in was going, to, was going to be challenging and that, you know, Kurt Russell could handle it.
0: Sure, and I think uh, he needed somebody there who trusted him, right? Like a lot of these yeah. guys, like I was saying, he's working with them for the first time, and you know it is his first big studio picture. And Russell, at this point, you know he's got a great working relationship with Carpenter, I think, and the movies they would made together were very successful. And uh, I think Kurt Russell just had a very good sense of how he worked. So you know, if anybody else had a question, if like Donald Moffat or Wilfred Brimley, these like older actors who'd been in the business a lot longer, like you know what's up with this Carpenter kid? I feel like. Russell could have, uh, you know, talked them down or just sort of given them a good sense of what to expect and things like that. Because, yeah, I mean, uh, the the rest of those regulars are not here.
1: Yep. Yeah, little uh, little change up there, but uh, as I've mentioned multiple times, still had Dean Cundy. Um God, I love just the the whole environment of this movie is just so awesome, and I lo- I was I love how it's not like. It's it's all like natural environments, you know. I know I know there was some stuff that was shot on studio sets, but um, man, it's just. Beautiful, beautiful
0: it is movie. very, very well done, though. I mean, uh, you know, if you listen to the commentary track, Carpenter is, is very forthcoming about, you know, this was done on a lot in L.A. and this was done in British Columbia and this was done in Alaska. And, um, you know, I, I think it's very cohesive. And, you know, he mentions this idea that the outpost is just supposed to be kind of a bland location. Right. I mean, there's nothing sort of showy. There's nothing visually interesting about a, a an Antarctic outpost. Right. It's a it's a very utilitarian kind of setting where you know, it's laboratories and sleeping quarters and bathrooms and stuff like that. And the walls are all the same color. It's all these sort of tight little corridors and and stuff like that. And the lighting and the cinematography here are so good, you almost don't really notice that, right? Like, there's not much to look at aside from the action of this movie and the characters of this movie. But um, there there's such great like we we're talking about the storeroom moment there earlier, where it's just Kurt Russell covered in ice holding a. Flame lit up blue and red. I mean, there's a lot of blue lighting. It's a very blue movie. The poster is very blue. The color choices, the color palette of this is really fascinating. You know, I, I'm so glad that this movie finally, over the years, found the audience mm. that it deserved. Um, and, and that's, I guess, something worth mentioning also. So this movie was a commercial failure. As we talked about in the last episode, there was kind of an overall decline in horror films uh, and profitability of horror films leading yeah. up to this.
1: <clears throat> you know, I... I I just wanted to say because you mentioned that on the last episode, and I I was like, how could that possibly be? Because I was thinking about this this time period, but you are absolutely right. Um, I guess that basically b- right before they released the movie, the studio like had a meeting with Carpenter and lowered his expectations. Basically, they were like, "There's been a huge decline in appeal for horror films," and then they had a few screenings that didn't do too well. Um, I had read about there was a screening of ET where the trailer for the thing played, and like, <laughs> oh man, I would have loved to have been there. Basically, like everyone, it was just like dead silence in the theater after the trailer played, and that, and that's when they knew, like, they were dead. You know, like this movie was not going to do well. But you know, everyone talks about the ET phenomenon and how that movie made like you know f- five, six hundred million dollars or whatever it did. I mean, it was enormous success. Because there was a thought process between, like, the studio's banking on E.T. being a kid's movie, and this is, like, the adult's movie. But there was a lot of other factors that were going on, and, I mean, just to rifle off a few, this was released the same day as um, a lot of other great movies. I mean, you had, like, Tron was out at the same time, there was a new Star Trek movie out. The Road Warrior had just launched Blade Runner had just launched Conan the Barbarian and Poltergeist and, and oh, you know wow. and, and Poltergeist gets a PG rating so everyone can go see that it makes 120 million
0: dollars. Poltergeist is, is pretty gruesome for a PG movie. It's nothing like The Thing, but uh, you know there's some moments in there that you would never get away with today and in, uh, in something for a family audience. Um, interesting, you mentioned Blade Runner, because that's another terrific science fiction film from this period that was kind of a bomb when it came out and was kind of uh, dismissed by critics and audiences and only became a cult classic years and years later. It's like, you know, it's like almost in, in one year there's only room for a certain number of movies in a certain genre, and when you have have this massive blockbuster like E.T. or like Titanic uh, in 97. It's like it just kind of sucks all the air out of the room for for a lot of other things. Yeah. And I I did a Tron is the same way. I think I I believe the original Tron was kind of, um, you know, something that picked up steam a little bit more like on VHS rather than in the theater. They
1: did. But like so, so what the box office page on Wikipedia here says, basically, the thing was not a box office box office failure nor was it a hit. So, I mean, it made 19, six, $19.6 million on a $15 million budget. But even Tron broke $30 million. You know, I mean, Blade Runner debuts at number two on the top ten that weekend. The Thing debuts at number eight. Um, yeah. And so there were just so many. It was the, the combination of of the E.T. thing. There was a recession going on in the economy at the time lots of other bigger blockbuster movies coming out and then here comes the thing which is just (laughs) the thing about the thing that I find most incredible is that um it wasn't just like oh you know it was a great movie but it was just overshadowed by all these other films that came out people hated
0: this movie when it came out uh yeah uh, um yeah, you know, like, and I really think, first of all, it must have been a very shitty feeling for Carpenter when the studio basically called yeah. him in and says, you know, this thing you've been working your entire life on, like, you know, this uh, this homage to this director you love that you spent the last year just sort of doing so meticulously. Yeah, we're, we're really lowering expectations for that. Don't get your hopes up about this. That's got to feel terrible. Um, and then, yeah, like... I don't think they knew, and he says this a lot, that they knew they were going to have a, a very graphic, very strong, very violent picture, but they didn't know that audiences were going to react quite the way they did. Um, he was called a pornographer of violence. One of the magazines sort of used that phrase to describe him. He even says, uh, you know, in the commentary during the blood test scene, there's a moment where, I believe it's Nalls, there's a, a close-up shot of his finger, and he's got a little exacto knife, and he's just drawing some of his own blood and putting it in a petri dish and uh carpenter says audiences were just totally revulsed by that like with all the gruesome body horror in this movie <laughs> even this little moment of like a thing of just like taking a little blood sample you know a thing that you would do at the doctor's office even that really turned people off so um you know they they just were not prepared for how extreme this movie was going to be and i guess maybe at the time a mainstream audience like you know there were other periods in movie history where if you had the goriest movie of all time you could make a lot of money just based on that claim and i guess here you know like you said it, it just it was not that time in american history people were not interested yeah. in that um, something so bleak something so nihilistic and and something that just you know you're going to see things that you can't unsee and uh, and people were not it, ready it, for that and you know in, in a way this movie's
1: almost had the biggest turnaround in like cinema history i, I can't think of another movie that was hated this much when it came out that ended up becoming so adored and, and I mean, adored on every level adored from, you know, a creature effects uh, perspective from a cinematography level to acting to uh, the aesthetics, the music uh, from Ennio Morricone. Uh, Like this movie ended up not just being like, Oh, you know what? That movie was pretty good. It went from being the most hated movie on earth. And at this point in Carpenter's career, his first failure, you know, It's his first failure um, to just being like this absolutely um, fond over movie by fans all across the globe. And it didn't even take that long um, from what I was reading. Once this was available on home video, you know, mid 80s, late 80s uh, into the early 90s, it already started to gain a fan base. And it sucks for Carpenter, man, because. I don't know what that's what that feeling is like because I've never done any project on like that grand of a scale. But that's a big blow to your your ego and your confidence. Um, and well, he lost he lost his job. Lot. Yep. Yeah, he was going to do Firestarter. He got fired from Firestarter, um, and basically wouldn't even. He didn't even want. To, he didn't talk publicly about <laughs> about the failure of this movie until a couple years later. So.
0: Um, Well, he wanted to have another job at some point. Yeah. So uh, he probably had to keep mum about it. Yeah. I mean, you sort of you always have to ask those what if kind of questions. And I've even read a few things where where he basically said this, like this movie had it been the hit that they wanted it to be. And again, it's this time when science fiction is very popular and they expect every sci fi movie to be a giant blockbuster. And and a lot of them were not like Blade Runner Um, had this actually connected with audiences and critics at the time where would he have gone from there i mean it's it's certainly like you said like a a blow to your confidence a blow to your ego um certainly just your prospects you know producers are they still going to want to work with you and things like that i mean the the thing they always say is you're only as good as your last movie so yeah the the reception to this being as bad as it was it really you know he's he's all of a sudden put on this pedestal after having all these independent hits and being seen as a guy who could make a movie very cheaply that makes a lot of money. I mean, that's what they love. It's all about just sort of the the money and the profitability of a movie. And, you know, he kind of gets that. He gets to, you know do this Howard Hawks movie, do a remake of a Howard Hawks movie. I mean, this should have been the the ultimate Carpenter film. And I think it is the ultimate Carpenter film. It should have been like the, the high point of his career. And it turns out to actually be the low point of his career. And he kind of has to do some work for hire after this. And he never gets to ascend to that level of like, you know, the uh, the Spielbergs of the world. I mean, that's what this movie would have done for him had it been as successful as Spielberg's movie from that year, which was E.T. I mean, he could have probably joined, and, and you know, I'm not going to compare the two, but... Um, we don't know. We don't know what the sort of uh, the blockbuster carpenter, the, you know, the, the big studio carpenter would have been like because this movie basically closed that door for him. And even though he went on to do other studio films later, um, he never quite had the stature. I mean, he, he really could have been like top of the A-list kind of director had this worked out. And personally for me, I mean, I love this movie so much. I'm glad finally it it got its due because it is you know i've seen it so many times at this point and it it just works on so many different levels it's so good um i've sung its praises to so many people always with reservations like if you can't handle the blood and gore and people will be like oh well this movie's like 40 years old how bad could it be and it's pretty bad it's uh it's pretty intense <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, and it's a shame that you mentioned the thing about you're only as good as your last movie because it's – I mean, I guess that's just how ruthless the industry is. Like, people couldn't look past the fact that it did have all this other competition and, you know, maybe they didn't take the public's consciousness into consideration as much as they, they could have. But, I mean, this is the same guy that just did Escape from New York and Halloween and The Fog and Assault on Precinct 13 and all these great low-budget movies that did make money. Yeah, Um, so, and and
0: maybe that got him pigeonholed as a low budget director, right? I mean, I feel like, you know, he misses out on so many opportunities because of this. And, uh, I don't know, it's, it's just like, it's a, a weird thing to think of a movie this good as being just so, so damaging to someone. Yeah. And, and, uh, but what,
1: that's, what's awesome. One, uh, vital element of the awesomeness of what we're doing on this show is that regardless of what you know, critical reception was to it at that time. We can sit back and just from analyzing the nuts and bolts of the movie and kind of just seeing the the, the career, the evolution of, of John Carpenter as a filmmaker. At this point, he just keeps getting better, you know, and that hasn't he hasn't lost any momentum as a filmmaker. He just had his
0: first swing and a miss
1: on, on a commercial level.
0: Yeah, just happens to be his biggest movie to date. And and I mean, you could argue that Carpenter never really gets a totally fair shake ever again after this, right? I mean, you know, he does work for the studios again. He does kind of get to direct some fairly notable properties like Christine. I mean, that is his next movie, right? It's uh, 83, so... You know, it's not like he went into exile for 10 years and then got sort of lured back with a very small project. I mean, Stephen King was a a huge author at the time. Christine was a hit book. So that's not small potatoes there. But, um, you know, in terms of him getting to do exactly what he wanted to do and really make movies on this grand scale that he probably wanted to make, um, you know, everything else he does from here on out is uh, is a little bit more restrained and a little bit more contained in some ways.
1: Yeah, I mean we're going to talk about Christine on our next episode, but it certainly was like a job. So, I mean, I've heard him talk about it before and his deal was kind of like um I needed I needed the money. <laughs> um but in in hindsight, looking back at it, he's still proud of the movie. Um and is 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 pretty happy with the way that it came out. And it does put him back into a situation where you know they cut i don't know what the numbers are, I'm not looking at him right now, but you know they still gave him a few million dollars to make Christine with, and this is at least a um, a picture where it, it it was it was a profitable film you know it it he gets back on the side of at least being making a profitable film, and over time Christine has become. A cult classic, like most of
0: his movies. I'm I'm very excited to see it because it'll be my first time. So we're we're getting into some uncharted territory. The next few, actually, I've never seen Starman either.
1: Well, I think I think you might actually like it more than you're expecting. I mean, I don't know what your expectations are, but um, I think it's pretty good.
0: Well, I like John Carpenter, so uh, I, I probably won't hate it, right? <laughs> you probably won't hate it. I don't think the director of a movie I love as much as The Thing could completely blow the next one.
1: Yeah, I just can't wait to... be Because we have so many more movies to talk about, and I know we're going to get to that point. It's, it's fun for me to guess uh where you're just going to be like all right this is this <laughs> is this is this is where the ball got dropped or whatever but i i think that's going to be quite a ways from now to be honest with you
0: yeah well i I've, I've seen some of the ones that come after this and uh, and enjoyed them a lot so uh i think we'll be fine for for a while but any final thoughts on the thing i mean we we've talked about it a lot i think it absolutely deserved the two episode treatment i I want to watch it again. And I, I think I couldn't pay a, a higher compliment to this movie. Um, You know, like I said, I, I'll be showing it tomorrow night. Uh, I'll be seeing it with an audience for the first time, which is very cool because um I'm very interested to see how people react to certain parts of it. And That's hope, cool. Hope we get a few who have never seen it before, who are just sort of going into this a little bit blindly. That's going to be a lot of fun, but um, anything else you want to say in, in closing about this really, really great movie?
1: Um, uh, no, not really, other than it's a movie I'll continue to watch, um, you know, on a regular basis. And I did uh was very happy to hear that they are—I uh, think Waxworks is re-releasing the soundtrack for this um, on vinyl, so I need to look into whether or not I can pre-order that shit before it sells out, but um, I'm glad we got to it, man. You know, this is— uh, We've done, uh, like, a, I feel like at this point we've done a whole leg of his career
0: yeah um, I mean we've but, hit a lot of classics at this point and uh, yeah. and I, when we were first talking about doing this show The Thing is definitely one of the movies where it's like I cannot wait to just sort of break that movie wide open and spend some time on it and, and really just share my love of it I mean look do we know everything about this movie probably not and that, that's true of everything I mean we, we are not approaching this as like the uh, the quintessential Carpenter scholars uh, I've never met the guy I don't uh, I don't know a lot of personal details about him and I'm sure we've missed things or or made some mistakes along the way, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I hope it comes through on the show. uh, My, my sincere love for this movie and my sincere appreciation for it. I mean, I think this is a a genre that I care about very much. I love horror and science fiction, and this is one of the best films in that genre that I've ever seen. Period. The end. (laughs) All right. Well, if you uh, if we have made some mistakes, if you want to clear anything up for us, or just let us know how we're doing, um, we really, really do love to hear from our audience and let us know. Um, you know what else you would like to hear? Any other thoughts on this film or any others? Any uh, any trivia or details that uh, you think might be interesting to us? We will listen to all of it. Um, you know what you think? Who you think is the creature at the end of the movie? Are you a uh, are you team Childs or team McCready? We'd love to know all of that or team neither of them. Um, you know, maybe that's the bleakest ending of all, is, uh, is these two guys are going to die and neither one of them is the creature. But anyway, if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can reach us via email at precinct13podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at 13precinct, facebook.com slash 13precinct, and our website where you can download this episode and all of our episodes is precinct13.simplecast.com. We would love if you head over there. There is an iTunes link. If you want to give us a rating and a review, we would really, really appreciate it and with that i think it's uh it's on to christine
1: christine and we have a special guest or supposed to have a special guest we'll see if he actually shows up uh
0: (laughs) he'll show up
1: yeah um josh mosley we're talking christine and he's pumped he's big stephen king fan he just read the whole book again
0: so i think our conversation is going to be very interesting awesome well i am looking forward to that very much we will catch you in a couple of weeks on precinct 13 (music)